Welcome to the Race Haven Radio Show and Podcast, your source for solutions-focused dialogue about race in America, with your host, Scott Speed. My name is Dr. Scott Speed, and I am the facilitator of the dialogue. This is episode 24 of Race Haven, and today I am joined by my co-host and friend, John Costino, who's the founder and president of MoneyWise. How are you today, John? I'm doing great, Scott. It's a pleasure to be back here with you. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you on as well. Uh, as the listeners may be able to tell, my voice is a little compromised today. Uh, I lost my voice over the weekend, but we are uh, soldiering through. I'm excited to be back on uh, to bring the dialogue to our listeners. So we're going to just, you know, move right on through. Uh, we're also joined today by two special guests, uh, one of which is Ms. Lene Javet, who is the founder and CEO of Cosire.com, where culture and desire meet. I love that tagline and that, that content. And she's also the founder and CEO of the Mogul Institute. How are you today, Lene? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. How are you? I am doing well. So happy to have you on here. I can't wait to get your perspective on today's topic. Um, and we're also joined by another uh, special guest who was a regular contributor uh, and guest to the show, Mr. Montoya Smith who is the host of the Mental Dialogue Live Experience in Atlanta and also the host of the Mental Dialogue Podcast. Montoya, how are you today? You're doing well. Glad to be on, be back with you, everybody. All fr- we all friends here. Glad to be here. All, all friends here, absolutely. Um, <clears throat> so as I do, I like to um, tell everyone, you know, how, you know, the connection, uh, you know, that and how we all kind of know each other before we get into the topic. So uh, as Montoya alluded to, all friends here, um, I'll say that as our listeners, they've heard John before and they've heard Montoya before, uh, but Lene is new uh, to, the, to the show and I'm excited to have her. And Lene, how she is connected to us is Lene is a part of the mastermind group uh, here in Atlanta that uh, Montoya uh, and I and um, Lene, we're, we're a three-person uh, mastermind group of, of entrepreneurs. Uh, we call ourselves the Social Innovators Mastermind, and, um, you know, we come together and we help each other to think through uh, some of our, our business um, goals, challenges, aspirations. We provide each other with insight and, uh, you know, uh, inspiration. And it's always uh, encouraging. We meet once a month. So I, I definitely recommend uh, to anyone out there that's an entrepreneur or just anyone really to, uh, you know, it's always good to have a mastermind, a group of people who are like-minded going in the same direction that you can get together with and, and motivate, inspire, and encourage, and provide each other with resources. So that's how Lene is connected with us, and uh, I'm excited to have her on today for today's topic. Uh, today's topic, we're going to dialogue about the election of Donald Trump um, and if that will have a negative impact on African Americans. 
And the genesis of this topic is obviously the, uh, the election that just took place last month, about a month ago now, uh, where Donald Trump was elected uh, to be the president, the next president of the United States. Uh, for a lot of people, it was a surprise. And we did our last show uh, on the topic of, you know, Donald Trump and if a vote for Trump was a vote for racism. If you haven't heard that show, I recommend going back and listening to episode 23. Um, but we want to, I want to expand on that because I've had uh, a lot of uh, friends and, and colleagues and, and, and through the you know, social media sphere, which is where I get a lot of my news, most of my news from, um, I've seen a lot of fear and I've seen a lot of uh, frustration. And, I've, and, and, and more importantly, I want to stick on fear. I've seen a lot of fear uh, from my African-American friends uh, and colleagues uh, with the election of Donald Trump. So I want to discuss that want to unpack it, you know, get the uh, perspective of our guests on, you know, where that's coming from, if they feel it's valid, and what, if anything, we can do about it. But before we jump into the dialogue, as always, um, well, actually, before we do that, uh, let me see here, I'm getting a little feedback. If you guys, uh, for the guests who are on the line, um, I don't know if there's any wind or anything in the background, but if you could be mindful of that uh, while we're recording, that would be great. Um, but before we jump into uh, the dialogue, as always, I like to talk about the difference between dialogue and debate. And the, as you all know, um, you know, it's something I like to start each show with because I think it's so important. And I believe that dialogue is greater than debate. Um, in debate, there can only be one winner. In dialogue, participants work together towards collective solutions, towards win-win. And each week I like to share a different example of how dialogue is greater than debate. So this week I want to share with you that dialogue respects all other participants and seeks not to, to alienate or offend. In contrast, debate rebuts contrary positions and may belittle or deprecate, deprecate other participants. Now, that one right there is a really hot button, you know, uh, one for me in terms of the contrast between and the difference between dialogue and debate because I'm sure all of you are in tune to and aware of our climate, our social climate, our political climate, where we have a debate-based society. And, you know, we have a one side wins and the other side loses society. And I totally reject that. Uh, everything that I do and everything I speak towards is about dialogue in terms of how we communicate as well as in terms of uh, how we engage politically, socially, and economically. I believe in creating win-wins. I believe in collective solutions. So, one of the things that is pretty common in our society is that, you know, when I see people get into their arguments and their debates, it instant, I won't say instantly, but a lot of times uh, it, it goes towards belittling, it goes towards name-calling, uh, it goes towards all the things that we tend to teach our children are not, you know, ethically or morally or socially sound, um, especially myself as an educator, but then as adults, these people who are supposed to be the leaders of our nation, the leaders of our country, every four years, especially around the national, you know, uh, election time, we see this. We see adults calling each other names that they don't agree with each other. We see our politicians calling each other names if they don't agree with each other. And for me, it's like the biggest hypocrisy, you know, in the world. And I just don't understand how we continue to allow that and we continue to model that for the next generation. And I just feel like at some point we have to step up and we have to take the step up on the social evolution ladder and be above all of that. 
And even when we're in disagreement with one another, we can learn how to communicate in an effective way where we don't alienate one another, we don't intentionally offend one another towards common solutions. And that's what dialogue is all about, and that's what we attempt to model on this show. So here's our framework for authentic dialogue on this podcast. Participants listen with a sense of curiosity and ask questions to uncover the underlying assumptions and beliefs behind someone's statements. Participants are willing to communicate their thoughts openly and honestly while putting aside emotions, defensiveness, and a desire to be right. Participants approach someone who sees a problem differently, not as an adversary, but as a colleague in common pursuit of better solutions. Now, that framework is very important because you're going to hear us disagree on today's podcast. And I asked my guests to put on their dialogue hats, and I'm putting on my dialogue hat, and we're going to engage, um, you know, and we're going to ask questions, and we're going to dig deeper and try to get to the underlying beliefs and feelings to understand why we feel the way we feel. And ultimately, we're just going to share our perspectives and hope that, you know, the listeners can gain something from it. So with that being said, come to the dialogue. My guests, John, Lene, and Montoya, are you ready? Absolutely. Let's do it. All right. I am ready. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Okay. So as I tend to do, I like to uh, pull quotes, I'm sorry, comments from social media uh, to kind of set the tone for the climate that's been, you know, going on out there. And then I'll have, I have a couple uh, links that I may, uh, you know, add as well. But I want to go back to the overarching theme uh, of, of the top of the, the show, which is, uh, is, Don, is the election of Donald Trump uh, going to have a negative impact on African-Americans? And the reason why I want to focus on African-Americans, because let me be clear, and I want to make this clear, that I understand that there's a segment of Americans that think the election of Donald Trump is going to be hurtful uh, for, all, for all Americans, you know, no matter their ethnicity. But the reason why I want to focus on African Americans is because this is a show about race relations. And again, as I take the, the pulse of my timeline and my friends on Facebook, a lot of my African American friends have some serious concerns around race and around safety. And one thing that I want to highlight, uh, actually off of a post that Montoya posted the other day, was recently there was in the news, there was footage of Jim Brown, who is a civil rights uh, icon in terms of the work that he's done since the 60s uh, for civil rights for African Americans. And more recently also uh, Ray Lewis, who is a retired NFL football player, um, who's very, you know, had a very, very prominent, I'm sure everyone knows that name, who, who knows sports and knows football. And they recently had a visit with Donald Trump, um, you know, at the Trump Tower to discuss uh, economic development in the African-American community. And instantly on Facebook, I saw a lot of pushback, a lot of African-Americans who felt like they were um, tokens. So, you know, I, I saw that term being thrown out there, that they were tokens. Uh, I saw other terms being thrown out there that they were actually traitors, you know, traitors to African-Americans and to their race. Um, and ultimately, you know, before I go into one of the comments specifically, um, I want to ask, uh, my, my guests, have you guys, uh, seen, I know Montoya, you posted this, so I know you have thoughts on this. So I, as a matter of fact, let's just go ahead right there. Uh, let's start with you, Montoya. Do you have any thoughts on, uh, what you saw and the, and more importantly, uh, tell me what you thought, 
you thought about those two going to visit Donald Trump and how it relates in terms of race relations uh, for African Americans and, and the Trump presidency, and also what you thought about the backlash that was pretty prominent uh, on social media from a lot of African Americans. Well, yeah, let me actually start with the backlash. Um, I was actually pre- pretty saddened by it, um, and literally off the strength of Jim Brown's track record, as you just mentioned, um, being um, one that that that's very prestigious as far as, in a sense, standing up as a man at any opportunity. Um, and we can countless acts, you know, whether it was standing behind Muhammad Ali, um, you know, if you go back into his college history, you find out, uh, you know, just, you know, being a on the African-American, on the lacrosse team, and, and, and what he went through on the football field and things of that nature, walking away at his own terms and continuing to be a part of the community. So he just has a, this avid track record that, um, you know, as you've kind of mentioned, getting into a, a bi- almost what I consider a bipolar society, whether it's all one way or the other, that one moment such as, you know, meeting with Donald Trump, regardless of how people may feel about Donald Trump, you know, pretty much for some people seem to wipe away that entire legacy. Um, not completely surprised by it, but I addressed it because it's not right and it's hurtful for for those who proclaim to care about our community, which he has already proven that. And so in proving that, in you know, in choosing to have a, a door to the president, whether it's token or not, because, I mean, there's, always, there's something to be said, unfortunately, for our community that quite often that entertainers and athletes are, in a sense, trumpeted out front. But that's almost a whole other conversation. Um, but in the case of Jim Brown, who has the track record, uh, Ray Lewis, you know, is intentionally trying to become a voice, and people may feel one way or another about him. But particularly to um, Jim Brown, you have, you know, a scenario where with his, with his track record, but in my opinion, even in that meeting, we don't know the exact words, but in that meeting, I would say there's somebody, regardless of what Trump may say or think, he's still in that room for us. And so for it to be looked at is any other way is ridiculous. I don't want to dominate and, and go back and answer your first question. I'll let some other guests jump in, but I definitely wanted to address like just just disheart just it was just disheartening to see people quickly erase away an entire legacy simply by meeting with a man. But I'm not completely surprised as I just said, just because we are now what I consider almost a bipolar schizophrenic society when it comes to agreement and disagreement. Okay, thank you. Thank you for sharing that perspective. And to add a little more context before I ask Renee and John to jump in, um, the comment that uh, that I'm speaking to in terms of uh, there's a, a person when, Mont- well, let me just start from the top pretty much. Montoya, uh, on his Facebook page, he just wrote a comment basically uh, questioning all of the um, pushback towards Jim Brown, basically saying that, you know, Jim Brown has done so much in terms of activism in his lifetime that most of us today wouldn't even be able to carry his jock strap, you know, literally, and, you know, literally, you know, Montoya said, and obviously making that, uh, you know, uh, you know that, that reference to, you know, sports and everything with the jock strap. But one of the comments on that post uh, said this. It said, publicly criticizing Cap's protest and declaring he fell in love with Trump is very problematic. Trump using Jim Brown's hard-earned reputation to trick people into thinking he's harmless is very problematic. I respect what he's done in the past and over his life, but the current situation is a problem. 
so before I share with you uh, the question that I asked that individual who posted that, um, Lene, do you have any thoughts on on this uh, this particular uh, topic? I actually do, um, and, and I think it's a good question. I actually saw a post that was very uh, similar in nature, and so I want to first say that I, I I understand both sides of the equation, both sides of the argument, but I think that my how I feel about it is this. I think that the taking the opportunity to meet with prominent leaders in the black community would be great. And I think that the the downside to that and the unfortunate piece is we don't have any prominent leaders for Trump to meet with. So there's that. Um, and since there aren't really any prominent leaders to meet with, he has to rely on celebrities and people that – um, you know, social activists of days past. I'm not taking anything away from Jim Brown, but he's not necessarily an activist of today. Um, I think that there are other people that Donald Trump could have met with that more properly align with today's agenda for black people. I don't necessarily think that meeting with celebrities and people that are going to give him, you know, press time that are going to look good in the newspapers and look good from a you know, reality TV show perspective. I think that there are other people that should have been in those meetings. I think that having the meetings is great. I just don't understand or feel that our agenda is necessarily going to be moved forward with the people that he has, he has selected to meet with. So not taking anything away from Jim Brown and all that he's done, I just feel like where this community needs to go today, the people who can lead us there today, I don't think that those people were there. And since I mentioned that we don't necessarily have any prominent leaders, so then I know somebody's probably thinking, well, then who would he ask? He would have to get down and talk to some of the socialists, not socialists, but some of the social activists of today, whether that, and I won't say any particular names because everybody's definition of a social activist and a social leader is going to be different. I'll just say that I think that the, the, the proper people that should be in those conversations were not in, the, in those conversations. In my Basically, opinion. you're saying that, you know, yeah, so you want, you want to see people who are on the ground, people who have been in the communities actually working on the ground level for years, for decades, who that's their day-to-day work um, instead of those notable faces. Um, I, I get that, and I, I would have to say I agree with that, you know, wholeheartedly. Um, so, John, uh, how does this uh, land with you uh, so far? Uh, I don't know if you, you're familiar with this story. Uh, if you have any comments on this particular uh, story, uh, do you have anything you want to add to the whole Jim Brown, um, Ray Lewis, Donald Trump meeting uh, portion of, of, of the show? Sure. And, uh, and obviously, Scott, you, you know me as well as anyone. Um, my frustration is not a white-black thing or an African-American or European-American thing. My frustration is a brainwashing of basically our entire population. And what I mean by that is people are going to see what they see. This is a classic example of is that is the glass half empty or half full? Instead of recognizing it's the glass, let's empty it out and let's fill it the way we should fill it. And the reason I say it that way is Trump was already judged before it was before anything began. He had already been pegged and judged because of the media during the election. After winning the election, he was then judged again before doing anything on all of his selections. We are living in a society right now where both African-American 
and European Americans are just brainwashed 100% by whatever the media wants to say. And, and I will point blank give examples if we need to give examples, but my statement is there was nothing Donald Trump was going to be able to do that was going to make people happy because we still have idiots running around protesting the election on merits that make no sense. And my whole point is, until we as a society come together and say, we want things to get better for everyone, for everyone, we as a society, as a human race, as Americans, want it to get better for everyone, it's never going to be good enough. Now, I'm not even a big fan of Ray Lewis. I have my own personal issue with Ray Lewis from stuff that went on in the past. But my point is, there was no one Donald Trump was going to be able to sit down with and people were going to be satisfied. And that's because he's already been painted, judged, and everybody's made their decision on him prior to winning the election. Now, my point in closing on this is if there is a list of people that would be considered worthy and and legitimate for him to meet with, then I suggest someone put that together and get it out there. Because all I have seen in the last six months is any African-Americans that suddenly supported Trump were sellouts. And that is the most ridiculous thing in the world because prior to his election, prior to running for the presidency, he's been in in the public eye for 30 years. And we talked about this on a previous show for 30 plus years. And he took all kinds of, of events and photo ops and interviews with prominent African-Americans from Al Sharpton to Don King to athletes to entertainers. And everyone loved them. He's never, ever been accused of being a racist or anything negative until he chose to run for the presidency against the liberal Democratic media and the machine that it ran. So I'm going to say it one more time. We can put together whatever list we want. We can do whatever we want. But we together, not just the four of us on this call, but we as a society have to make the decision that once and for all, we want a change, a change for the better, and a change for everyone. Okay, can so before I, I, I let uh, Montoya and Lene jump in. Uh, Lene, let me, let me um, okay, you know what? Yes, let's just go with that. I was going to jump before I was let you jump in. I was going to, um, you know, throw something out there. But you know what? Let's just let it happen organically. You got something you want to say? Go for it. Yeah, I just wanted to. Uh, I don't even know if it's an ad or a piggyback, but I, but he said something that made me think. He said that up until recently, Trump hadn't been challenged, and so I want I want to agree to and disagree. I agree that he hadn't. As a reality superstar, as a real estate mogul, as a business person, he hadn't been challenged. He hadn't been challenged by Americans or the entertainment industry. It wasn't until he started running for presidency that he started talking about let's make America great again and riling up all this um, negative energy. So I I, I kind of agree with what John said. He was never um, pressed prior to becoming president. But when he started coming, become you know, when he became the president, presidential candidate, he started heavily relying on this negative energy that brought this very ugly um, reality 
of racism to the surface. So it's kind of a catch-22 when you say he, he didn't get any of this back, backlash until he started running for presidency. Well, he didn't start telling us how he felt until he started running for presidency. Well, I, I guess my question okay. then is there were plenty of people that the last 30 years, I'm saying go back to the early 80s, he was very well-known. I'm not just talking about his TV show. He was very well-known, very well-respected, and very well-loved in the – entire community and my question is why are Don King Mike Tyson Muhammad Ali just go through the list why are they all loving on him if he's such a terrible horrible racist because we know that there are terrible horrible racists out there and I don't remember seeing Don King and Muhammad Ali and people that we all agree have a, have a good enough eye and ear to know what a racist looks and sounds like why are they now saying he's this horrible person, yet for decades, not for months or for years, but for decades, he was loved and revered right. across the board, and there was nothing about right. it? That's a really important thing for Let me, me jump in. Yeah, I can answer that let question very real easily, quick. actually. Montoya, oh, hold, on. hold on, Montoya. Let me, yeah, please go let ahead. me just throw please something in before I bring you back in. Um, I recently, just to kind of add to that, um, I, I agree with um, – I have some stuff, but I know, Montoya, you'll probably cover the disagree side – I just want to throw the agree side and the thing that I question as well throughout the process. Uh, I recently I listened to a lot of podcasts and I and I recently heard some with um, uh, Russell Simmons, for example. Russell Simmons. I'll just say this too. I'm from Philadelphia, so Atlantic City is only an hour away, and Trump was very big in Atlantic City, an hour hour and a half away. And between like growing up in Northeast and PA, I'm sorry, growing up in PA in the Northeast, uh, people I knew from New York, African American people from New York, African American people from Philly. New Jersey, there was always this, this positive view of Donald Trump as I was growing up. There was never this negative, oh, he's a racist guy. It was always this, a, a, a pretty much a positive admiration, you know, this, this hustler, you know, businessman type of uh, admiration for him, and especially within the hip-hop community. And Russell Simmons recently spoke about how he called Donald Trump a friend. And Russell Simmons is a huge Hillary supporter. He raised money for Hillary Clinton, etc. Um, but he was really surprised, too. It was interesting because he said prior to this election, you know, he's known Donald Trump for decades. You know, they partied together. They, they you know, they, they, he considered him a friend. But obviously in this election, he supports Hillary, and he didn't really know where the, um, the rhetoric that has galvanized all of the, uh, you know, the prejudiced and racist people in America, uh, whatever it is that he, that whatever his platform, whatever it was in his platform that has galvanized them, that was a surprise to, to, to Russell Simmons. I was recently listening to another one. Scott, uh, Scott, Scott, you're leaving out something, Scott. Scott, you're leaving out something on Russell Simmons. On. It's very unfair. Let me send my very question. unfair to Scott. That's very unfair. But go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Just, just let me finish. You can say whatever you want to say. Just let me finish. Um, so, and then I was listening to one with uh, Stevie J, and Stevie J was speaking about who, how, you know, he was used to be with Bad Boy, um, you know, a producer, for those who don't know, with uh, Sean Combs, Puffy P. Diddy, uh, one of his main producers, and they used to party all the time together in the 90s. He said him and Donald Trump and another guy. Basically, there's a lot of these anecdotal uh, stories about Donald Trump, uh, you know, having, you know, uh, social outings, et cetera, with the hip-hop African-American community throughout the 80s and 90s, et cetera. Now, if there was an agenda behind that and, you know, to get them to come to his, his business, et cetera, I'm not saying that those things don't exist. I'm just giving – I just wanted to add that 
to the to the dialogue, that perspective. So, uh, Montoya, definitely want to let you jump back in. Go ahead. Uh, real quick on the Russell Simmons thing, actually what he was surprised about was the rhetoric from Trump. So you, I, I definitely want you to go back and check that. I mean, obviously, we, you know, you have a perspective on it. I have another perspective on That's it. That's what so, I said. You know, we can't, let me, let me just, okay, let's okay. So where the way you, yeah, the way you said it, said. you said it, you seem to be – okay, I misunderstood you. It sounded like you said you were he was surprised at the pushback against Trump. That's how I thought no, I understood. No, no, That's no, what I, I thought said, I heard. Okay. No, Russell Simmons said he was definitely surprised with Donald Trump's rhetoric. He was surprised with the rhetoric and the, the, okay. the dangerous rhetoric. Okay, I missed okay, that. Okay, that's what I was worried about. I thought I heard it the other way. Okay, yeah, that was yeah, okay, so, cool. So okay. we're on the same page with that. Yeah, yeah. maybe I just missed it. And I definitely didn't want that out okay, there so, the way I thought I heard it. Okay, so here's what I want to ask. I wanted to answer John's to, question um, too. Oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Okay, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead and I want yeah, to let yeah, you jump in yeah. if you want to. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, John's qu- your question um is very easy to answer, brother. Um uh, basically um <laughs> There's a long history of anybody you know that is considered a celebrity of not seeing any type of treatment that maybe the masses are experiencing. So when you, you know, and Don King, you know, considered um, still considered, um, you know, he just he definitely supported Trump. So you know, he's not somebody that changed his mind. We just heard about Russell Simmons, who he definitely said I consider him a friend. Very shocked to hear the things that he's doing now because I hadn't experienced that. So your answer to, you know, why didn't you hear the people you just mentioned, the names you said, Muhammad Ali, the Don King, um, these prominent names, it happens all the time. Celebrities may not experience what the masses may experience. You know, his situations where he's being, um, you know, sued because of how he maybe treated contractors, and obviously he's at the top, so that may be directly on the ground. So I'm not just trying to put that directly to him. But being sued for discrimination, and I'm friends with Trump. If I'm if I'm in that level, I may not know about that situation. So it's not as simple as why did they rub elbows with him? Why did Mike Tyson love him? If they don't know that part, if he's not carrying out in that manner with him, I'm just giving you how that could happen. I'm not sitting here and just riding with the masses and says races, races, races. I actually feel like um, I think it's Van Jones, and I'm saying his name correct from CNN. He basically said it the best. He said that he didn't feel that Trump was a racist, but he felt that he was a racist opportunist, a racial, a racial opportunist. Let me get the word correct. In which, in that situation, he um, definitely felt that's a bigger issue because all he does is play to the emotions. And so the last thing I'll say to you, John, is this. Um, One thing that I would consider a little incorrect about the way you're viewing this, you're absolutely right that the Democratic liberal media did what they did. You're absolutely right about that. But but we cannot act as if Donald Trump didn't play a role with what I just said. What, what he definitely definitely played to that rhetoric, and he put some of this on himself. So it's not just the, the media painting a picture. He definitely played a role in it, too. That's more reality than just saying the media did it alone. Well, Montoya, I will... So let me ask you, John. No, well, let, me, let, me just, let me just throw this one in. I'll kick right back to you, Scott. I agree with you, but we're going to make this a blanket universal statement. If you are a politician of any kind, you're a freaking opportunist, and that's their definition. So I'm not saying that Trump does not have political opportunist mindset. And in that tone, it may be racial, it may be gender, it may be all of, you know, potential. 
that's every politician. We could sit here and spend hours talking about Hillary, Bill, Bush, you name it. That's all of them. So I'm not going to – I'm not going to say he's a racist because he's an opportunist or else we can go ahead and debate every politician at every level for all eternity. So you, think, all so you feel like the other politicians said things anywhere close or similar to what he Because I haven't heard those over the years. And I'm and okay. I'm, I'm going to say that Hillary is racist. So I actually believe that Hillary is racist, but I've never heard her speak anywhere close to how this but that's man because spoke. The, but that's because the media is controlling what we hear. That's my whole point. I can listen to a whole speech that they don't cut it out. I can okay. hear the man's whole speech. I, 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 I guess we're just saying two different things because there's what you, I mean, she's on record saying have two positions, one that you share publicly and one that you share privately. Do you remember that video quote of her? Um, well, we just well we just did. I just said she's racist. So what we're not going to no, do? No, no, no. I'm just is, I'm just saying that. That's not, a yeah, video I absolutely remember because I. That's the biggest issue I have with her. That's why I never trusted it, her. But that's not Hillary. That's not Chase's. That's not Chase's discussion to trust in Hillary Clinton versus no, no, you no, saying we're, we're that I'm, he's I'm comparable in his rhetoric to all politicians. You have to admit that Donald Trump has not been comparable to any other politician playing to racial insensitivities, gender insensitivities. I'm saying the word incorrectly. But you don't pretend like his rhetoric has been anywhere close to any politician's routine. I, I will agree he is nowhere near polished enough to represent himself as a politician. And that was evident from his first day on, on debating and, and uh, politicking. He is not polished. He spoke and put his foot in his mouth. He said some of the most stupid things you could ever say as a human, let alone a politician. But it doesn't change the fact that I would still argue that they all do it. Some of them are just way better. It's like Lance Armstrong and blood doping when he was racing. They all cheated. He just was a better cheater, and it took two decades to catch him. So all well, I'm saying we, is that doesn't, mm-hmm. make, that doesn't make Trump a racist. It makes him stupid, but it doesn't make him a racist. So what happens okay, is, for so those of us that are African-American, for the ladies, they don't hear it that way, John, because we, we're sensitive to never hearing other politicians sound anything like him. So you get the – I'm just letting you know, you, that's how we feel from the real experience of those words. No other politicians come close to it. Hillary okay. hides hers, and I call her a racist, but she doesn't – it ain't just being polished. Do not, it's not fair to compare those words as if they're close to saying the same things, and he's just fumbling. He's, 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 he's I'm very not, smart. I'm not, I'm not comparing words? the words at all. Hold on, John. Not John let me jump in. Let me jump in, guys. I need you guys to, um, you know, anytime this is obviously going to be a heated uh, dialogue, but I need you to let me uh, facilitate a little bit because there's certain things that are being said I want to be able to drill down on uh, instead of getting to a back and forth and also just giving each other a little space and time. Um, I'm going to try to, I'm going to try to, um, you know, kind of facilitate a little bit more uh, hands-on for this show to kind of guide it because we definitely can go down a few rabbit holes and I want to get to a specific, you know, a few specific things. So I'm going to ask you guys for a little grace and allow me to jump in, um, even if you're mid-thought, because I want to be able to control the content, if you don't mind, uh, just a little bit. Absolutely. So just, Absolutely. just really quick, uh, Montoya, you said, um, and you may not right off top, I know I'm asking you out the blue, but do you have any specific examples of something that Donald Trump said uh, that you can point out that you felt was very inflammatory? I know that's hard. So the first thing that comes, yeah, yeah, first thing, yeah, first thing that comes, yeah, first thing that first thing comes to my my head is, um, look at my black, 
look at my black. He's over there. He's not being loud. He's not. I'm obviously paraphrasing in the worst way. <laughs> okay. But but he's basically he's black. Like how how ridiculous is it to say here's my token guy in the crowd that's not acting like these BLM people. Here, matter of fact, he's my black. Look at my black. You if you there's no way you can tell me you can speak to me that way and care about me and respect me as an African American. Again, I didn't vote for either one of them, so you know, for me, it's not you know, I couldn't you know, as far as Hillary or I couldn't vote for either one of them. Could not do it. But that day right there, and there's other things too, but that's the one that comes off my top of my head. Okay, so yeah, he said. Uh, I just pulled it up real quick. He said, "Look at, look at my African American over there." Um, I would, I would definitely, um, yeah, you know, he he said, you know, look at my African American over there. So I would, I would personally, you know. I don't know. I don't, again, it's hard for me to speak on it because I didn't see the whole full context of it. Um, you know, that, okay, I can see how that, let me say this. From my perspective, I can see how that's, you know, offensive. Uh, but I could also say, see how someone would say, like John would say, how, well, that's just an example of how he's unpolished. You know, look at my African-American over there. That's, that could be someone's example saying, well, he's just unpolished and he was just trying to say, you know, if he was better, he could articulate better. He might have said, look at my African-American supporter or friend or whatever over there, et cetera. Um, so, okay, that's an example. Uh, Lene, do you have any examples by any chance? Are you still there? Mute I'm still here, sorry. I have it on mute so that I don't have the background noise while I'm driving. Sorry. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so the only, I mean, I, I'm, I'm going to be honest. This in particular election just made my stomach upset, and I tried to not feed into the cockamamie as much as possible. So one of the, almost everything that he said rubbed me the wrong way. But to do, to give another example to what Montoya said, I know whenever he referenced black people, African Americans, he always called them the blacks. But when we're talking about the blacks. And I'm like, are we, our, are we our own continent? Are we our own community? Are we separate from the United States? Are we separate from American people? Why are we the blacks? Um, right. I think, I think there's a huge disconnection. And I think that, I mean, I, I, I can see both John's point and Montoya's point. He's definitely unpolished. Um, he does have, you know, relationships with black people. He may not know how to speak to the masses as uh, Montoya said, but for me, it really comes down to if you're not a racist, then say you're not. Stop fueling the fire. Stop pretending like you are then. Stop egging the people who are racist on as if that's where you stand. So if that's not where you right. stand, if you're saying that that's not what you believe, say that then. Don't let people vote for you and get you know behind what? you and support you because that's what they think you are. Right. You know what, that, that, that reminds me of something that rubbed me the wrong way. And even though I know I'm, I've gone on record to say I don't vote, I don't believe in the system in general, um, I don't believe in, you know, Hillary or anyone, and I think the whole system is flawed. But with that being said, I do pay attention. And one of the things that, um, you know, definitely rubbed me the wrong way, uh, for example, is when Donald Trump was asked to disavow his support from the KKK um, because they endorsed him. And I, I believe it was David Duke and Donald Trump, instead of just saying initially, instead of saying, you know, I, I, you know, I, I don't know if disavow is the right term, but 
you guys know what I mean, um, you know, his their support, he just said, you know, well, I don't know who David Duke is. And I'm sure Donald Trump has heard of David Duke. He's one of the most, you know, recognizable names in all of America because he was a state senator and he was the grand wizard of the KKK. Everyone knows who David Duke is. I believe he even ran for president at one point. And that may be true or false, but he's very he's been a prominent politician and he's been out there. So instead of Trump just saying, you know, I disavow that support, he initially just said, well, I don't he, – he, 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 you know, jumped around the subject. And then it, like, he was it a politician. The next day. He acted like a politician on exactly. that. Exactly. That's my point. Let me, let me, exactly. That's where I'm going. So that is – that's where I'm going <laughs> pretty much. The reason why he did that is because he knows that there is a large, large segment of Americans who are stone-cold racist who still are white supremacists in the worst way, um, and, you know, he wanted to – he didn't want to turn them off because he knew that that was a large portion of his base. And to me, that's disgusting. It is so disgusting. It is so – I can't even put into words how disgusting that is, that he could not just flat out without thinking disavow the support of the KKK. Like, it's and unacceptable Scott, to me. So, it is, it's, Scott, it is so disgusting. So disgusting so, that the rest of the politicians of the GOP absolutely did what every other politician would do right now. So in being a politician, John, he chose to go opposite of the whole GOP, who absolutely was saying we disavowed that. Ryan had to come out since he would dance around and says, I don't know David Duke, come to find out he did. But Ryan had to come out as the GOP speaker that says, we don't accept people to act this way or treatment. Ryan spoke up as a politician because at that time the GOP was scrambling because they couldn't believe he had done that. So when you say like a politician, okay. again, I said to you, he doesn't do I, I what welcome, other politicians I do. Chance, I welcome the chance to have my say on this. Please continue. I'm done. Okay, so um, I just want to give that as an example of something that Trump did to galvanize the support of the racist segments of Americans uh, that was very, you know, hurtful to African-American people. And here's the thing, too. I want to make this point, and, John, and I'll let you jump in. I, don't, I think that, I mean, quite frankly, I know a, a large segment of white of uh, European-Americans just don't care, um, that the trauma of the African-American experience in this country, there are scars. And you can, and, and we are walking around as, as scabs, for lack of a better term, just to provide a, an analogy and a, and a visual that can easily, you know, like they say, you, could, you know, you, uh, you opened up that wound again. Unfortunately, because of our, history, our collective history in this country, African Americans who are descended of enslaved Africans, we are traumatized and we can, you know, um, you, know you can do things that can, can bother us and can rip off that scab. And to see someone who's running for the highest office in this country not immediately disavow the KKK, I got to imagine that, you know, European, a segment of European Americans, I know they get it, how that could be hurtful. And, it's, and I'll say this, it is hurtful to me that there is such a large segment of European Americans who don't get that. So go ahead and jump in, John. Well, I will put myself in the category that does get it, and I will simply say this. It was a boomerang effect. It doesn't make it acceptable, but it makes it understandable. And my point in saying that is for every single person that can claim what you guys just claimed, that Trump absolutely was out of line and he should have disavowed any whatever with the KKK. I'll support that. But where was the same criticism 
when President Barack Obama was getting all kinds of support from very, very black activists that were clearly on an agenda. And it's, it, again, it's, we have to, you live by the sword. You I need to know who you're sword. talking about. I wanna, I'm just asking, I don't know, I have no clue it, it, who you're talking it, about to understand okay, you. So I've got to give I'm me not, an example. Like, I just wanna, I'm sorry, I understand right. you. I'll give you that. I'll give you, I'll hold on, Montoya. I'll okay, give I didn't you know who Jeremiah Wright. Is that, do you remember that name, John? It, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, there was dozens of them, and it was in the news. It was very inflammatory. And I didn't hear a single African-American leader speak out and say, wait a minute, maybe this isn't right. Because President Barack Obama ran on a platform of we're going to unify this country. We're going to cross the line in the House and the Senate. We're going to bring the country. And then he ran. And the second he was involved as president, that whole agenda changed. And I'm not even – again, his comment shortly after winning – Go ahead. I want to I want to thank you for letting me jump in, John, because I want to again I want to kind of control the the flow of the of the show. Um, so I want to allow uh, Montoya or Lene. I want to you know give get their feedback on. I think it'd be a good context for our listeners. So when let's just use Jeremiah Wright for example, because I remember that you know he he preached from the pulpit. You know a lot of fire and brimstone towards European Americans and and, turn, and, and that was uh, President Barack Obama's you know pastor, and they showed that video. I do remember Barack Obama coming out and disavowing his relationship, mm-hmm. and I and I Absolutely. felt like uh, that that was that was rough for me. I'll be honest, that was rough for me um, because I understand the complexity behind all of that. But I can also understand from a European American perspective who would say, you know, well, that's a, a, a double standard or whatever. So I'll allow you guys before I kind of add on to what I think about the complexity. But I'll let you guys. I think it adds context. You know, that's a valid question from John. So. Uh, Lene and Montoya, do you have any any reference? Do you remember that? I do. I do remember that. Um, and I have a couple. I have more than I want to say. I need another example um, because if we only have one, I don't think one is enough. But <laughs> the other thing is, the other thing is, um, Barack Obama also came out and said that he's the president for the people. He's not for black people only. He's for all people. He said that. Like, those are words that came out of his mouth. And then if you look at what he's done for America, you will look and see that he hasn't done anything for black people or African-Americans, if we're going to say politically correct. So I kind of feel like, eh, well, it's a good comeback. He didn't do anything. Um, he said he wanted to change America. He did. There's a lot of agendas that have been brought to the table that have been moved forward, none of which have positively affected the African-American community. I love Barack Obama. I I voted for him. I would vote for him again. So I'm not taking anything away from him or his legacy. But when you're talking about how Barack ran and the premises with which he ran on and the promises to the people compared to how Trump ran, uh, there's no comparison. Uh, there was the the riling up of racism that came while Barack was running was from the KKK. Yet and still, the 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 the, the racist community in America. He didn't play into it. He didn't rile it up. He didn't add fuel to it. He handled it like a gentleman when it was thrown in his face about having black supporters in the black community and his support of that community. He came back and said, "I'm for, I'm for all people." I'm for a unified, a United States of America. And, John, you just said that. He said he was going to unite this community. That's what he said. Trump has not said that. He has not come up against the, the racist community, the KKK, and the
and those that are supporting him and said, I'm for all people. If he would have did that, I probably could have been like, okay, cool. At least he's going to try to unify him. But that's not what he said. Okay, so basically what you're saying is based on your perspective, um, you know, when it, when the, the, I guess we'll call them the, they, they're called black nationalists. Basically, what John is speaking to is the whole black nationalist uh, rhetoric that, you know, is very black nationalist, black supremacist type speaking that basically hates, you know, European Americans and speaks against European Americans generally. Um, and, and it's pretty, pretty much, you know, very firm in their stance that there's a segment of African American people who are pretty firm in their stance that they don't like European American people. They think that they're evil, et cetera, et cetera. And John is saying, you know, that when those people came out to support Obama, that, um, you know, President Obama, um, you know, he had the same type of support from that side of extreme, um, you know, Trump is getting. But what Lene is saying is that but Barack Obama was very proactive in terms of disavowing that support and also saying that's not, you know, who he's trying to speak to. And she feels like Trump did the, ex- the, the, the opposite. And, you know, he and Trump specifically tried to rile those people up. I just want to add to that really quick that, you know, it's tough. This is, this is so tough, man, because, you know, the perspective is, is, is so real. You know, there's a video that was floating around that I sent to you a, a while ago, John, where, and I'm not sure if you had a chance to watch it, where Donald, in, at Don, one of Donald Trump's rallies, you know, he was making reference to, um, you know, what they did to protesters back in the day. And it was the African-American protester that he was speaking to at that, or in reference to at that time, or at least the way the video was cut, it looked that way. So I'll say that. But it looked like, um, you know, he was like, he was basically speaking back to a time where the fire hoses and the dogs during the 60s when African-American protesters, you know, were, were, were protesting for civil rights, but they were getting their heads beat in. Um, and, and Trump was saying things like, you know, it was coded, but that demographic of, you know, older European-American people, that's the era they grew up in, and that's what they knew. They knew segregation. They knew, you know, putting those people in their place. They knew all that stuff, and Trump was, like, speaking to it. He was encouraging uh, the violence in his rallies. He never said it. He never, um, you know, again, disavowed the violence. He encouraged it, you know, and it, it was like he riled that up. He riled up that, 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 that red meat, like, let's go out and, like, tear it up, like, you know, in terms of fighting against, you know, any of their uh, dissenters. So, uh, so John, you could, you could jump back in on that. And I, I want to just kind of bring it back to our, um, our theme because I think that, you know, what we're talking about speaks to some of the reasons why African-American people uh, feel so unsafe because of these, these messages and these themes. You know, for those of us who grew up seeing the civil rights era, seeing the people that looked like us getting their heads beaten, and for some of us, they were our family members, and, you know, getting their heads beat in or getting fire holes or getting bitten by dogs because they were protesting. So when Trump speaks in that way about African-American protesters today, it just brings up some, you know, again, it opens some wounds. So, John, what would you, you know, I know you wanted to jump back in on that. So what do you have to say? Well, I mean, there's a whole bunch of pieces that just got uh, tossed into the puzzle. But the bottom line is. Well, let me, and, okay, I'm, not, I'm sorry, John. Let me, I want to go ahead and be more specific, John, because I do, I don't want to make this about Obama versus Trump. But I know well, that we use that as long as we're going to acknowledge. But wait, as long as we're going to acknowledge that this went on when President when when Barack Obama became president, and then he was President Obama, he made a lot of cabinet choices. He made a lot of decisions that were very very anti-white, anti-U.S. And 
all I'm saying is it, it, that doesn't does that now mean that we all are going to say he was racist and and he was anti-American? Okay, so now I got to ask. I don't, I, I don't hear that. I don't hear that stuff. I, I can't even give it energy because I'm ta- I'm talking about his cabinet. And I, I mean, to be honest with you, Scott, I had to purge all this stuff out of my head a long time ago because it drove me nuts. But if we need to, we'll do another show on it, and I'll go do all the research on people that were brought into uh, positions of power in the uh, Barack Obama administration that were known communists, that were anti-American, that were, I mean, the bottom line is a lot of that stuff went on. I let it go because I understand I have no control over it, and I, I focus on the things I can control. But I never once heard him accused of being any of those things, even though it was right in front of us. And if we're all going to say we don't remember, then we'll just say we don't remember and we'll do another uh, podcast. Well, the other problem, the problem is you're, 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 you know, to go now anti-communist or anti-American is not the conversation we're having now. Um, I'm like Lene. Yeah. What's the other example? I don't want to go down that road. I prefer not to go down that road. Uh, and I want to, like John said, we can maybe have that discussion again. I'll, I'll just say, and also just for me personally, I'm just so, um, you know, anti-politics that I don't pay attention to most of that stuff, so I wouldn't be able to speak to it uh, intelligently. So I want to bring it back to, um, you know, I want to bring it back to, you know, the, the fear thing for African Americans um, in terms of, you know, the Trump presidency. And I want to, I want to highlight a quote from um, the same individual that I, that I spoke to before. So, uh, they go by the handle of H.L. Wynn. I wanted to say that. Um, H.L. Wynn is the handle that this individual, I believe it's a female that she goes by. Um, so I asked her when she talked about uh, Jim Brown, I, I just asked, I said, so what is it exactly are you afraid of that, um, you know, can happen during the uh, Trump, you know, presidency and, you know, that's going to hurt African Americans? And I, and I just said, how do you think Trump is planning to harm you? And how does using Jim Brown help him do that? That's what I wanted to know. Because I wanted to drill deeper into her, you know, her thoughts. So this is what she said. She said, number one, Trump has appointed known white supremacists to his administration. Number two, Trump expressed his intention to reinstitute policies that have already been proven detrimental to us, such as stop and frisk. Uh, number three, Trump, has, she said it again, Trump has appointed known white supremacists to his administration. I find that interesting now in contrast to what John is saying because he's saying, well, Barack Obama appointed known anti-American, anti-white people to his administration, which I never heard, and I didn't know that either. But I'm not saying it's not true just because I didn't hear it. Um, And then number four, uh, let's see. She said, um, okay, I I won't go any further, but she basically was highlighting how, um, you know, the whole – some of the policies. And Stop the Frisk is one that I spoke about, I believe, on our last show. That was another example that I gave that I I was very uh, disturbed by in terms of his support for stop and frisk. The statistics show that over 92% of the people who get stopped in the stop and frisk uh, searches, primarily in urban inner city uh, communities like uh, New York City and the Bronx, et cetera, um, they are not carrying anything. They, they, get, they are able to go on with their way after their you know, uh, constitutional rights have been violated. Stop and frisk is totally against the Constitution, and it's totally demoralizing. And it's totally racist because it only happens in the African-American community. But Donald Trump came out and said he was going to support that. So I understand her fear uh, of that. Hello? Um, yes. Are you there, Lynette? You can hear us? Okay, sounds like Lynette's having some uh, connection problems. John Montoya, can you hear me? Yeah, I'm still here. Yeah, I'm still here. Loud and clear. 
Okay, okay. She uh she just dropped. I saw that she dropped. But anyway, uh what I was saying was so what with this this person on Facebook, HO Win, what she was saying was, um, you know, the stop and first thing is the one I want to concentrate on because that's something I'm very knowledgeable about. Um, you know, I'm, I'm currently listening to the new Jim Crow. I'm not finished just because it's so hard to listen to, um, in terms of the, it's just, it's just egregious in terms of, you know, how the policy and politicians, you know, have, uh, ravaged the African American community, uh, literally since the emancipation of, of, of enslaved Africans, uh, using the criminal justice system to, to go on and, and enslave, uh, African Americans in a different way, using a loophole in the constitution to do so, or in the 13th amendment to do so. Um, and, it's very hurtful, um, and I want to I want to get you guys thoughts on that. So that's one example of how she shared with me how she's afraid of how the Trump administration is going to neg- negatively impact African American people. So from your perspective, I want to know: Do you think that fear is valid? Um, from my from my guest perspective, do you think the fear is valid that African Americans have been expressing about a Trump, you know, um, presidency? And that's just being one example. Uh, so who, who would like – you guys can just jump in. Someone um, – you know, Montoya, you want to jump in first? How about that? Yeah, sure, sure. So um, I've been on record in, a, in another forum in saying before the president – before the election um, being asked to be in a forum that I, that I was, wasn't afraid of a Donald Trump presidency. Um, and, again, voting third party and not for Hillary or him. But I did come on record saying that. Um, I'm, I'm actually like the fact that, for example, that he's, even if it's not the right people, as Lene has alluded to, the fact that he's stepping out and saying, here's an agenda that I would like to have to affect the African-American community economically. Of course, the fear is, will he do it as it? But I don't let fear drive me because one thing in that instance, there's something that he's done that no other politician has done, which is speak directly to us. Even Barack Obama didn't do it in this manner. So in that sense, I give credit. But unfortunately, and, and we've been on the show before talking about this very issue, I need to circle back to it, which is mass incarceration and the over-policing of communities. You've heard me say, and many times, Scott, no matter where you go in the world, if you want to ensure that one group is kept at a lower status, the simplest way to do it is to over-police them. So I'm saying this to say, while I give credit on one hand, I know that the devastation that we experience systematically in our community is driven mostly by what we just talked about, the new Jim Crow and the over-policing of our communities. So it's very difficult to hear, whereas I will speak positively in a way that most African Americans want about the fact that he's speaking to our community, I know that it can all be wiped out if he absolutely ramps up, stop and frisk, with, and I'll give one example and be, qu- be quiet. I think it's, I may be wrong about the year, but when New York was doing it at the highest level, uh, may have been 2009, 11, maybe as late as 14, I forget when their highest point. But an example of the stop and frisk policy, they stopped more African-American men that are actually in the city of New York City. They had, and they used to have to report what was the stop and frisk for. What the worst, the greatest example I ever saw of it, and this is on record, according to the New York City data, they had 32,000 stops in the, whichever year it was. I got the real, I don't know exactly which year it was. They had 32 stops, 32,000 stops that were for suspicious bulge of African Americans. They found one gun in 
when they stopped for a suspicious bulge. Now, I'm not saying they didn't find guns in, for stops for other reasons, but when they had to record, when they recorded themselves, when NYPD recorded themselves as saying we stopped for a suspicious bulge, one gun the entire year, 32,000 stops. I'm not making it up. I'll pull the records up if I have to for anybody that doesn't believe me on this podcast. Oh, no, those are those are absolutely, uh, I don't know if this is the exact number, but I know that the numbers are very, like, they're bad, just like that. I mean, there's so many stop and frisk numbers that have proven that it just doesn't work. It's, it's horrible, man. And I, I'm on record saying a lot that, you know, if I um, if they stopped and frisked on my college campus, there would have been a lot of, uh, you know, college kids uh, locked up. But they don't come to college campuses. And I went to a predominantly European-American school. Even my high school, uh, where a lot of uh, it was known that a lot of the European American students were doing drugs, um, it just didn't get the same uh, attention, and I, I think that's just unfair. And it's not, you know, I'm not saying this is someone who thinks that um, if anyone's new to this podcast, you know, I'm not saying it in a way that um, is is hateful or, um, you know, in any way. In any way, it's just a matter of you know of fairness, and and unfortunately. Again, if you watch the, the documentary on Netflix called 13th, or if you read the book, The New Jim Crow, um, Michelle Alexander, who's a civil rights attorney, she documents all this stuff. And it, it's, it's, it's hurtful. It's very hurtful to, to know uh, these statistics. And then if you're listening to this podcast, I'm pretty sure that you grew up in the neighborhood. If you're European-American and you're middle class or upper, I'm pretty sure that you know about people doing drugs in your neighborhood. And I'm pretty sure that you know that the police weren't just stopping people randomly or raiding, raiding homes randomly trying to find those drugs, even though those drugs were there. But that's what's going on in inner city, and it has been going on in inner city impoverished communities because that's low-hanging fruit, and they know they won't get the same amount of pushback, um, you know, from, from society in general because they're picking on uh, African-American and other ethnic minorities. It's just the sad reality of our country, and it, and it has to stop. So uh, with that being said, again, the question was, um, you know, do you guys think, uh, John and Lene, do you think the, the fear is valid from those African-American people who have expressed fear and concern about what a Trump presidency will do uh, to African-American people in terms of their, their health and their well-being and just being afraid of what, you know, I'll just say it, what, uh, and when I say, you know, white supremacy is, is a term that I've learned is um, it has different meaning to different people. So I'll just say white uh, hate is what uh, white supremacy is the term, uh, but let's just say the extremist uh, white supremacist uh, undertones that have kind of, you know, come up, come up and they're, they're kind of, you know, walking around loud and proud. And I have some, some data I'll give on that in a minute. But um, do you think that those fears are, are valid? So uh, uh, I guess, Lene, are you, are you back with us? Yes, I'm here. Thank you so much. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna start with agreeing with Montoya. I think for in the day to day life, I don't I don't have any fear in the day to day life. I'm still gonna wake up every morning. I'm still gonna be a mom. I still have to drive my car. I'm still gonna see my family. None of that stuff changes. I, I don't think any of those things change. I don't have any fear with regards to that. Um, I think you hit you hit the nail on the head. The fears that I do have are relative to the loose mouth, the blatant disrespect the upfront racism, um, the disregard for human life. That does ha- strike fear in me as a mother of a black son. I, I, do, I am fearful for what these next four years means to him. 
um, as a young man walking the streets, uh, if, if stop and frisk does come back, if he's riding down the street and somebody's driving in a truck beside him who, who looks at him and has no respect for him or his life and, you know, shoots him or runs him off the street or whatever the, the case might be, I am fearful of that. And it's, uh, and it's unfortunate that this is a real reality. This is definitely happening. I actually just put up a post on um, my Facebook page the other day about this young man, this black man that was helping this woman. She fell coming out of a store, and she wasn't breathing, and he's literally there administering CPR to her until the ambulance arrives. And her husband, her husband says, and I won't use the word that he used, but in leave my wife alone. And, and he's like, I have to help her or she's going to die. He was like, you get the F up away from her. I don't want you to touch her. He's like, sir, if I don't keep doing what I'm doing, she's going to die. The man turns around, goes inside, gets the clerk, brings the clerk out and says, get this in off my wife. And the clerk's like, sir, I think we need to let him finish doing what he's doing and had to literally restrain the man. The ambulance gets there and says the only reason this woman is alive is because this man administered CPR until they got there. The man didn't thank him, didn't say anything, spit at him, and I might be exaggerating and spit at him, but that's basically how he felt and kept moving. This is a grown man. He's in tears. With, 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 he was like, I've never been treated that way before. I've never been called those names before. And he was like, is this where our country is going? That does scare me. Not anything else about the presidency, not the economy, not, you know, jobs, none of that. Just the blatant level of disrespect and how people are going to be treating people, that does, um, that does strike a nerve with me. Wow. <clears throat> that's, that's great context, especially, and per, great context and perspective, especially as the mother of, a, of an African-American son where, um, you know, there's plenty of instances where young African-American men have been shot and killed. Uh, one of the most egregious is, is just because he, he was playing his music, the story of the kid was playing his music too loud, uh, and a European-American man was, you know, offended and he took his life. Uh, I don't know if argument ensued and, and et cetera, whatever happened, but the fact that it even became an issue uh, is, is one of the things that I know. It's just one example of the stories that I hear about, uh, you know, why people are, are fearful. Um, I want to just give this one report before I share a couple things before I bring you back in, John. Uh, there's a uh, organization uh, called the Southern Poverty Law Center that tracks all the hate-based groups in America and also tracks incidents of, of uh, hate crimes um, or hate, you know, in any form, uh, whether it be physical, verbal, et cetera. And they have a, a story about the post-election, a summary of the data post-election. There were 867 post-election hate incidents, and they even do it by date. And one of the things that happened is that uh, since November 8th, 2016, Schools have been the number one place where hate incidents have occurred nationwide. Um, and there's been uh, 200, uh, close to 250 hate incidents um, in schools based on anti-immigrant hate uh, since the election. And then they have like a chart of uh, anti, what it, called, what it calls here, anti-black. There were over 150. And then there's uh, anti-LGBTQ, et cetera, et cetera, uh, as well as, um, anti-Muslim, anti-women hate, and they have a, a tally of them all. Um, and one of the things that that stuck out to me that I wanted to share with you, um, let's see here. Uh, a mother in Colorado said, shared this story. Uh, these are self-reported. People report these to this organization, and, and there's 
I'm going to share the link in the show notes, and it shows um, how they get their, their information at, the, at this website. But one mother said that her 12-year-old daughter, uh, who's African-American, a boy approached her and said, now that Trump is president, I'm going to shoot you and all the blacks I can find. Um, there was another instance where a, a woman said, um, let's see, in Louisiana, um, I was standing at a red light waiting across the street, and a black truck with three white men pulled up at the, to the red light, and one of them yelled, F your life. F, I'm sorry, F your black life. The other two began to laugh, and one began to chant Trump as they drove away. Um, and, I mean, there's so many. There was one where a, um, let's see, just one more I want to share with you. An 18-year-old service employee in Kalamazoo, Michigan, asked the man if he needed help, and he replied, I don't need to ask you for SHIT. Donald Trump is president. He then called her a black B-I-T-C-H and spat on her shoes. Um, and, it's, and it goes on and on. And then the, the most, cra- the craziest one that I just have to share um, is this. It says that uh, white people have been threatened for bringing black friends past the boundaries of quote-unquote white neighborhoods. A, ma- a man in Nantic, Massachusetts, received three letters warning that his community had zero tolerance for black people. And it says, we have reclaimed our country back by selecting Trump, one note read, and you are now messing up everything. The final letter warns, we have just cleared the White House of niggers. Do not bring niggers in our neighborhood. We will kill them. And that comes from the same website, the uh, splccenter.org, uh, which is a, is, a, is a very prominent um, you know, website in terms of providing this, these data and statistics. And it's, it's a very balanced site because they also report on African-American, uh, just so our listeners know, they also report about you know, uh, extremist African-American groups as well. So I wanted to provide some of that in terms of some of the fear that's out there. Uh, and I want to get your feedback on that, John, in terms of what are your thoughts in terms of how this segment of, of European-Americans in our country, which I know is not all European-Americans, and it is a segment of European-Americans, and I'll even venture to say it's a minority uh, of extreme European-Americans that are out here doing these things. And I've heard personal anecdotes as well of people having some experiences like this. So I want to know, John, what's your thoughts on this about in terms of the fact that Donald Trump being elected has sparked a lot of this type of behavior. Well, I, I truly appreciate you clarifying because literally um, I don't consider them to be humans. When people act like that way, it's not human. It goes beyond white and black. That's just ignorance at a level I can't describe. So first and foremost, no, I don't condone it. And there's no way anybody should be accepting of that behavior. The story uh, that Lene shared and the instances that you just shared, they're disgusting. They're despicable. There's not a word strong enough for it. However, I am going to say that we cannot honestly believe that that all is just now coming out because Donald Trump has become president because that kind of ignorance those kind of hate crimes, that kind of garbage has existed. It existed this past year prior to the election, and it's existed for as long as I can remember. Now, the fact that it's been brought into the spotlight, I don't think that's so much because Donald Trump is the president. It's because we now have an extremely mobile social media. It's no different than a guy who used to cheat on his wife in the 70s or the 80s or the 90s now has to be completely, you know, way more careful going out today because anybody that knows him or knows his wife could take a picture of him, post it on the Internet, and he's outed. So the ignorance, the 
hatefulness, the racial whatever, whether it's a verbal crime or worse, is all now in the mainstream, and it's it basically out there for the public to to see and witness. That's why I personally believe it has become common. It's always existed. I think all of us would agree that you know the the racism and the the hate crimes have been there. They've just been covered up. It's no different than Babe Ruth being a horrible alcoholic, but back then the media covered that up, so we didn't learn about all of his. Uh, his negatives until probably 20, 30 years after he was dead. That's the nature of where we are today. I am not sitting here saying that I condone any of it. I don't. I don't think that Donald Trump's presidency is creating more of it. I think we are in a situation right now where Trump has absolutely opened up a can of worms. I am glad that we are going to have change because I didn't want another four years of what we experienced under either one of the Bush administrations, the Clinton or the Obama administrations. If we're all being honest, our country has gone to crap the past 25, 26, 27 years. And it's because the political machine, not Obama, not Bush, not Clinton, the entire political machine, along with the very controlled media, has basically held us exactly where we were. Now, that being said, is there going to be a lot of uh, issue to deal with during the change? Absolutely. But, again, I'm going to go back to my comment in the beginning. If the African-American community, and I'm not in any way saying I understand or can, can possibly feel what you feel, but I am going to say that as a white guy, a white male, a European-American, I have had my own share of issue being treated poorly and being fearful in the African-American community. But I don't label that on all African-Americans, and I don't label that on any segment of society. I just know there's some ignorant people out there that that's how they are. We have to come together as a human race, as a United States community, and that's really what it's going to come down to. We're going to look at that glass, and we're going to see whether it's half empty or half full, and I'm going to challenge everybody to say, let's tip the damn thing over and refill it with what we want instead of arguing whether it's half full or half empty. Donald Trump is not the enemy. We have to recognize that the enemy is within us, and we have to come together as the very vocal, loud majority that wants peace and harmony instead of allowing the very small, ignorant, violent minority to control all of the uh, – all of the information and to speak out against the media, which I think every one of us on this call will admit censors and gives us what we want or what they want us, not what we deserve to hear in every instance. And there's just enough examples out there of censored news media clips and sound bites that were designed to create and incite, and I'll use the word incite, racial disharmony and, and aggressive behavior, not to bring us together, but to keep us divided and angry. Okay. So thank you for all of your perspectives on that. And I want to give mine, and then you guys can jump back in. Um, so, again, going back to the topic, should African Americans be afraid of a Trump presidency? And, you know, as, as I've learned and all of the research and all the study I do and just being a part of the world and 
you know, interacting with different people in different places and different times. Um, and I've gone on record, as Montoya said earlier, that he did. I went on record saying that, you know, initially after the uh, election, that I'm not afraid. Uh, I don't I do not do fear uh, in that way either. And I will say this, though. Uh, after I post, I, I shared several thoughts about I'm not afraid and, you know, my thoughts about politics and things like that and how I think it's all designed to keep us at odds and a lot of things that John just said, I had a few people come onto my time, onto my comments and, and share how they are afraid. And what that caused me to do is pause a little bit because, you know, I don't want to minimize their feelings. I don't want to be insensitive to their feelings. So before I say what I'm going to say, I want to say that I understand that, you know, we're all different and we all come at this thing called life from different perspectives based on our, our collective life experience. So for individuals who are African-American, because of what that means in this country, I empathize with you, and I sympathize for your fear. And I don't want to minimize your fear. I'm only speaking for myself, okay? But I do understand why you're afraid, and I can understand that if you are that person that is getting disrespected and called names, even if it's from someone who is, as John calls, not even human, because I personally think that you have to have a mental illness to be um, and, and that, that might even be fair based on how I view mental illness nowadays, but I'll say that there is something severely socially inept with a person who is um, prejudiced uh, based on someone, prejudiced just based on someone's uh, ethnicity. I think less of those people. So their opinions don't bother me. Someone can come and call me a nigger to my face, and I'll think it's their problem, not mine. So with that being said, but I, I had to work on myself to get to that point. So I respect where you are if hearing those things bothers you and if you're fearful of what can happen. Um, I respect all of that. I do. Now, in terms of Scott, in terms of how I feel, I'm not afraid of a Donald Trump presidency because, again, I understand that everything is just a matter of perspective. So, for example, John just said that our country has gone to 30 whatever years. From my perspective, our country's always been crap. And the reason why is because of the way the African Americans have been treated, you know, throughout the history of this country. This country was built on treating African American people like crap. So from John's perspective, it just started happening in the last 30, 40 years. I respect that. That's his life. But from Scott's perspective, in terms of the collective African American experience, it's always been crap. And now I could say even now from my personal perspective, just in how I move and shake in my life, another reason why I'm not fearful is because I have privilege. I'm educated. I know how to speak and, and navigate systems. I know how to, you know, I'm incubated to a sense because my parents were educated, and therefore they provided me with a certain lifestyle and a certain level, again, a certain cognitive, abil certain cognitive abilities and certain social outlets and gave me a certain level of social capital to the point where, granted, on any given day, there can be some, you know, racist uh, police officer who decides that they want to, you know, target me, but the chances of that happening in the first 37 years of my life, it hasn't happened, and I'm going to say that there's a great chance that it won't happen for the next 37, because the re primarily the people that get targeted are poor people, poor African-American people. So where I could say that I'm not fearful or that, you know, quote-unquote, things have gotten better in American society in terms of race, do you think that the poor African-American young man who's being railroaded 
for having a small amount of uh, weed on them and now getting a felony and now can't go out and get a job and, you know, how that whole mass incarceration story unfolds. Do you think that things have gotten better from that person's perspective? Absolutely not. So I want to just kind of add those layers of, of, of complexity and, and, and context and nuance to say that where I'm not fearful, I'm not fearful because of my privilege. I'm not fearful because of all the things I just lined up. But that doesn't mean that the poor African-American who doesn't have the social capital, doesn't have the education and some of the resources to jail today, I have money and people who will bail me out that other people may not have. Like, so it's certain things I understand why, as an African-American, I'm not like all African-Americans. Uh, I'm sorry, I, you know, this whole concept that all African-Americans are in the same boat is false. It's just false. There are African-Americans who, are in this, who are, have the same amount. I'm sorry, let me just say this. We all know that there's social stratification, okay, and there's levels to social, you know, um, you know, based on where you are, where you fall on the socioeconomic ladder, there are certain privileges afforded you is what I'm trying to say. And there's African-Americans who've climbed that ladder to a certain point where they don't have to be fearful in the way that others who haven't climbed it are. Does that make sense what I'm saying, guys? You still with me? Yep. Okay. I just want to make sure that you guys can still hear me. Okay. So with all that being said, um, that's why I'm not fearful. But let me just say this. What I am concerned about and what I will say is that the whole political system in the media is a farce. Crimes that are happening, I'm sorry, the hate crimes, when I say hate crimes, uh, some of them are more egregious than others in terms of, like, churches being burnt, uh, you know, swastikas being drawn on buildings or people being called names. <clears throat> As John said, those things have always happened. Unfortunately, they've always happened, and those people have always been among us. But the news media gives us what they want to give us. Just like they only give us African-American, you know, crime at higher levels, or they only give us, you know, European-American versus African-American, you know, police murders, but they don't give us the murders of European-Americans uh, who are out here murdering cops or vice versa. They don't give us the murders of European-Americans, you know, murdering each other, the rates and things. They don't have a, a, a brand. You know, they have this brand called black on black crime, but they don't have a brand for other ethnicities, criminalized, you know, ways or, you know, criminal behavior, et cetera. So basically I say this, this is what John said. The media gives us what they know that we want. And it all, it's all based on the political themes and the political climate. And it plays on our fears. It plays on our, our differences. And it divides us. It further divides us. And I'm tired of it. And one of the, and one of the things that, again, my way of protesting all of that is by not voting. Because I feel like by me voting, I am supporting that system that is designed intentionally to divide us. The whole concept of liberals and conservatives and, I mean, just, you know, everything is a label. It's labels, labels to divide us. I reject all of that. I reject all of it. So in terms of me being fearful that Trump is president, absolutely not for several reasons. And do I think that African Americans should be fearful that Trump is president? I'll say this. I think that African Americans, especially poor and working class African Americans who tend to be um, you know, targeted for all of these uh, racist policies and systemic racism hurts them the worst. They should be fearful, not of a Trump presidency. I think that they should be fearful for the same reasons they should have been fearful for their entire lives. That's because systemic racism is alive and well, and it always has been. And it bothers me that, that all of a sudden, because Trump is president, that is getting all this attention, 
where I feel like we should be addressing systemic racism in education all the time. We should be addressing systemic racism in, in, in our economy and poverty all the time, in our health system and criminal justice system <clears throat> all the time. Uh, we should be addressing systemic racism in all those things all the time. And also we should be addressing poverty in this country all the time because poverty is criminal. And the same way that African Americans get hurt by poverty, so does European Americans and other Latinos and Native Americans and Asian Americans. They all get hurt by poverty. If you're, po if you're poor in this country, you're targeted. And it just so happens that if you're poor and you're a minority, especially African American, you get hurt more, okay? So with that being said, for me, I live that struggle daily. I live that burden daily against poverty and systemic racism. So Trump getting elected to me means nothing. It means nothing at all because all the problems in our country that existed pre-Trump, they're going to exist during Trump. They're going to exist after Trump. And it bothers me that we only get riled up in the, in the space of this political climate instead of being riled up about these things all the time. And here's what I'll say. I know that there are people, many people, who are riled up about these things all the time. But unfortunately, we've been sold this bag of goods that politicians are going to fix it. And politicians have never fixed it. So my question to my listeners and my guests is not even a question, but I guess a, a rallying cry or just me put, using this platform to get a message out is when are we going to come together as people, as people to fix our issues one community at a time and stop thinking that it's all about politicians because it's not. Politicians, is, it's a career choice. It has nothing to do with making things right in society. It has nothing to do with the analogy John gave that I love about dumping the cup and starting over. We literally have to do something that's never been done before. It's not, it's not about looking to the past for solutions. It's about looking to the past for context. But ultimately, we have to create something that's never been created before. We have to create new realities. And those new realities have nothing to do with black, white, African, European, Asian, His Hispanic, Native, Indigenous. It has nothing to do with those labels, conservative, liberal. It has nothing to do with that. Southern, Northern, I don't, you give me Democrat, Republican, has nothing to do with that. It has to do with our livelihood. It has to do with our wellness. And ultimately, as all people, I don't care what, you're, what you label yourself. I reject them all. I'm just Scott. I don't care what you label yourself. We all want safety, and we all want to be able to pursue happiness. And we want freedom and independence to pursue happiness the way we see fit. We all want that, right? We all want wellness. We all want a, a baseline of wellness. And I'm excluding the extremists in this conversation because I believe they are on the outskirts. The majority of Americans, we all want the same thing, but we let these, these differences divide us. So for me, when we had that conversation, I get very frustrated. I'm, I'm going to say this, and I'm going to let you guys jump back in. I've gotten very frustrated over the last month watching all this fear-based rhetoric, all this fear-based concern coming across my timeline. Because my thing is, if you're so afraid, when are you going to do something different? You thought Hillary was going to do something different? You thought all of a sudden all those problems with poverty and, again, economic, social, political, all those various things, health, criminal justice was going to change just because she got elected? So my perspective is my opinion, and it's my challenge to people to start thinking beyond politics. I may be wrong, and I'm okay with being wrong. This is my perspective. I don't put it out there to be right. But I am passionate about it. I do a lot of research that backs up a lot of things that I say. And these are the conclusions that I draw. And I just wanted to put that out there, and I'll let you guys jump back in uh, if anyone has anything to say before we close out in terms of, you know, my perspective. 
No one? Uh, I'm still here. I wanted to go ahead and allow the, the, both uh, Lene and, and Montoya to speak, but I'll, I'll say this. I love your passion, Scott, and that's why I am um, Yes. Um, oh, I'm sorry. Okay, I was on mute. Sorry, by accident. I was trying to be quiet. Um, but, Scott, if I could, I would actually like to challenge Race Haven because I – and from this from this standpoint, because I think I understand, you know, what you are trying to do here. Uh, me and John have talked personally one on one about his efforts for, in a sense, why he continues to do this, which I, you know, I've told him I'm appreciative of. And there's there's an opportunity, in my opinion, right now to bridge a gap that has not been crossed even in this discussion. Um, I personally feel like this discussion is is still kind of been discussed in narratives that kind of are put out there for us as, as intellectual as we say we want to be. I think we're still speaking in narratives. And here's a, here's an example of what I'm talking about. And it's an example of be, being able to move past the narratives. So I have a personal antidote from those examples you gave from the, from the uh, stats. I'll give you a real-life example of something that I've uh, experienced. So before the election, me and my best friend, got into it. Uh, he's a Hillary supporter, and, and then, of course, I'm absolutely against it because she's very, been very detrimental to our community, and I think the track record's obvious. You know, we have speculation with Trump. We have an obvious track, track record with her. So that's kind of where I stood. So me and him got a, a big heated argument over why I'm telling him I'm not afraid of Trump, you know, for all these good reasons. And so... As we're going back and forth, and I'm kind of breaking it down point for point on, you know, her policies versus we're scared of rhetoric with Trump. Eventually, he, he starts conceding in that area. But what he ends up saying to me as, a, as an educator, he's in the school system, he, said, he says, okay, he says to me that, okay, policy-wise, maybe I don't have these things to go by, so, okay, you got me there. He says, but education-wise, what we are experiencing in the schools has been episodes of bullying that seem to be ramping up. Ramp, bullying's always around, you know what I mean? And, of course, John, I know you said we don't want to attribute that to Trump, okay? But he said these things are ramping up. And so I'm sitting going, well, I'm still not going to be afraid of that. Bullying is a policy, kind of like what you said, John. But here's the thing. We've never had a candidate's name become a racial epithet. So to say he's just being a politician, he's a racial epithet now. So that's something in addition. But here's the thing that I want to say where I had to change my mind in the argument between me and my best friend. So after he gets elected, I was doing a, a, a summer after school, well, not a summer, but a, a holiday camp uh, here in Georgia. And literally, I watched these three little kids build these Legos. And they were just literally, I, and I wrote about this or whatever. But anyway, they built these Legos. And all it was was just a rectangle. But it was long, and I was like, wow, I've never seen kids with their imagination build just simply a rectangle and nothing else. It's like, this looks kind of boring, but the three of them were really putting their time into it. I was like, well, why would they even do that? Then I see them come together, and they stack the, um, and these kids are fifth grade at best. They stacked the three rectangles on top of each other and literally started chanting, if you want to build a wall for Trump, clap your hands. And I was like, this is what my best friend was talking about. So okay. I say all that to kind of, the only thing I say all that to kind of say that in having this conversation, honestly, 
every situation that you laid out in those stats, we can't always just simply dismiss that as, well, here's the equivalency of what I faced too when these are real-life experiences where Lene says, as a mother, I am afraid for these reasons. If you're going to ramp up over policing, this is a real-life thing. But if we go, well, people are just, those people are just terrible, and this has always been around, we never bridge the gap. You want to bridge, Scott, okay. because we just I mean, had an, a okay. narrative that just dismissed it all. So what I'm saying is, Montoya, I want to. I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to highlight what I'm saying, because that's a great story, and that's what's going on, um, you know, on the ground level. And it's all. And my point is, like what you just said, those things are going on, and and there's been things that have been heightened since uh, Donald Trump was, has been elected. But the point that I've been making on social media is that those things will we will cont- if we don't do something drastically different we're going to continue to be having these type of stories about those type of issues over and over and over again. Because even if you have eight years of President Obama, who you didn't see those things as much, and, you know, it, Obama was and all that he did, you know what those eight years did? Even, though for, even for people who identify and agree with Obama's politics, his social, uh, you know, platform, and his togetherness and, and hope and all that stuff, there was still a large segment of Americans who felt alienated, who felt like he was a traitor, who felt like he was all these things, like John said, um, whether you, I, or anyone else agrees with it, a large segment of Americans believed that Obama was hurtful to them. So the same way that a large segment of Americans believe that Donald Trump is hurtful to their well-being, eight years ago, there was a large segment that large segment of Americans who felt the same way, almost half. Like, you want to say the half that voted for Trump this time, let's, let's put it there. So for argument's sake, let's just put it there. So for the 59 or so million that voted for Trump, they were fearful, generally speaking, for their well-being because of the politics and the agenda of Barack Obama. So what people tend to do is they think that their way of living, their way of being, is, and what they feel is safe for them is what everyone should feel and be happy with. And then when their, when their agenda gets the platform and their agenda wins, they feel good. But what's happening is on the other side, those people are hurt, and now you have eight years of them bubbling up their anger, their dissent, or whatever, and they're going to have a, 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 you know, a, a, a time to, like, you know, fight back, and that's the next election. So when President Obama came up, it was out, you know, the numbers were great in terms of the turnout, especially in the minority communities, because he provided a window of hope. Well, this time around, Donald Trump did that for his segment, and the numbers of the poor and the working-class European Americans were up, you know, in terms of their turnout because he provided hope. And my thing is we're going to have this seesaw every eight years in the current system instead of some, you know, instead of us coming together as people to create a situation where we all can feel hopeful instead of my side wins. So F you for eight years, F you for the next four to eight years because my side won. I don't care about what you need. I don't care about what you want. My side won. And this is what I see now going on from Trump supporters and Trump voters. They're like, F you, you liberals. Ha, ha, ha. All this pointing fingers, all this immature, you know, childish behavior. It's like my team won, you know, our way of life wins. And now for eight years, we get the people who are against that way of life, you know, it's just, I'm tired of that cycle. You get what I'm saying. I'm tired of that cycle. So what I'm saying is, and what I'm promoting 
and I could be a, a lone wolf on this, and I know I'm not, but I could be a lone wolf on this. I say it doesn't work. I say we need to create a platform around unity and togetherness and compromise of people coming together and rejecting that system, rejecting that system of divisiveness, my side wins, yours loses, instead of instead coming together, coming up with win-wins, compromising the same way you would do in a marriage when you and your wife, because you love her, and you have to share, a case, in, in the best-case scenario, generalizing here, you have to share a household. So you give a little on both sides. You give a little of yourself. You give a little of your wants to make the unit work. And I feel like as Americans, that's what needs to happen as well. I may have to give a little bit of myself, but I'm willing to do that because I'm, I'm more invested into the overall community and overall nation being healthy and us moving forward together. And I feel like we need to figure out a way to do that on a grand scale. And you may, uh, people may call it idealist, pie in the sky. I'm okay with that. That's going to always be my platform. I'm going to continue to speak towards that. And while not, while not you know, um, belittling those fears that people have about what's happening in the here and now, my point is if we don't do something drastically different, nothing's going to change and those fears are going to remain. Because, again, there's a segment of people who've always had those fears from previous generations up until this one. But those who've come and gone, up into this generation, there's going to be fears within the current system and the current way we do things. Um, so, hey, John, go ahead. I know you want to jump in. Lene, please jump in and, and share any thoughts in terms of the perspective I shared. Go ahead, Lene. Please feel free to speak first. Thank you so much, John. Um, so I'm going to say that I think all three of you guys made some really valid points um, that, I can actually, that I agree with and support. Uh, I'll start with John when he was talking about the media, and he was talking about um, how much access people have, and I, I'm going to agree with him on that because the social media does allow people to step up and have way more access to a platform to give their opinion. You have more people using their cell phones to show um, actions of the police, actions of what's happening. So a lot of things that people would like to turn their face or turn their head on or turn their back on and say, oh, that doesn't happen anymore, it does still happen. It has not stopped happening. It's been happening all along. We just didn't have social media. We didn't have cell phones to show these things. Does that make it okay? It does not make it okay because it's happening. To your point, Scott, which is what I think you just said, was these things are going to continue happening if things don't happen, if we don't make changes, if people don't come together, of which I agree as well. Um, I think that the fear, uh, where I get, where I think this whole Trump presidency thing becomes an issue if you want to call it that, it really is in the, the divisiveness. And, I, and you know, and if, as I say this, I don't even know if this is a Trump issue. When you start pulling out these numbers of 59 million people think this way and 59 million people think this way, we see that we have a nation that is divided. We see that we have people that are still feeling that the old way was the right way. And I'm, and I'm even going to contradict myself a little bit because if you talk to some people who voted for Trump, who say they voted for Trump just because they didn't want to vote for Hillary. And then you have people that say, well, if you voted for Trump, you're racist. I don't believe that every single person that voted for Trump is a racist. So when you start talking about that 59 million against this 59 million, I think that we were, we as a, as a, as a, as a nation were in a situation where we had to vote for the lesser of two evils, or you really, really, really wanted some change and you just were not voting for Hillary, so you felt like you had to vote for Trump to do something different. 
So I think we're 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 at a, a place right here. I mean, we can we can really do some great things as the nation is separated. I think especially in our community, the African-American community, this is a great time for us to come together, to support each other, to unite, to make the changes that we say that we're going to make. This is a great time for leaders to step up and rise and be the leaders in our community. I don't think that we have to, nor should we, turn to the government to be our savior. I don't think that we have to, nor should we, turn to um, other communities to have to like us or beg them to support us or to have our back. I really look at this this next four years and this time right here as an opportunity for my community um, to come together and to do some of the unifying and to do some of the healing and to do some of the reaching across locally and nationally for us within community. Does that mean we're pro-black and against, you know, white folks or European Americans? I don't think that that's what that means. It means this is a time for us to stand up on our own two feet and do the things that we need to do in our community so that we don't have to be fearful. We want to have leaders. We need to raise those leaders up. We want people to step up and speak for us or talk to us or sit in those meetings with Trump. We need to identify who those people are. We need to figure out what our agenda is. We can't keep mashing our agenda with the masses' agenda, and I'm not saying massa, I'm saying the masses' <laughs> agenda, and then say none of our needs are being met. What are our needs? What do we want? Where do we want to go? If we get those things figured out, I think we as a black community, as African Americans, can move forward. That doesn't take Trump to do. That doesn't take Obama to do. That doesn't take any of these quote-unquote presidents and, and leaders of the free world. That starts with us at this level with dialogue and conversation. So, again, I agreed with so much with what all of you gentlemen said but with the work that I do, it always comes back to community to me. Awesome. I appreciate I'm, that perspective and that, and that context, Lene. John, do you want to jump in? Yeah, I'm so grateful, Lene. I appreciate everything that you just said, and I'm, I'm grateful to be following you to, uh, to piggyback and validate some of that. Um, first and foremost, I appreciate your perspective because I did, I did vote for Trump, and I told everybody you know, since then when they asked, it's because I could not on any clear conscience vote for Hillary because I wanted to change and I was willing to take whatever fallout came from that change versus what she was very clear with her agenda. We would have another eight years of. So I share that only to say that no, every person who voted for Trump is not racist because I am not racist. Um, The second part um, that I want to validate what you said is it really does come down to us. The fact that so many people are still looking out to someone else to fix everything is the problem. And I'm going to go so far as to say that I've been, uh, I don't know, Scott, it's been probably, you know, every bit of, of 15 or 20 shows that we've done. I'm going to just assume that everybody does understand I'm, I'm here for the same reason Scott is. And because I want a better world, Going forward tomorrow, um, as a father, I want my son to grow up in a better world and environment than I grew up in. And I think, you know, to Scott's point, every one of us deep down wants the same thing. And there's a very fringe, outspoken, angry, violent minority on both sides of the spectrum that's making all the noise and is controlling what we're describing as fear right now. And so back to what Lene said, I'm going to go one step further. 
that it's not just the African-American community and the European-American community. If we can figure out a way to all say we're going to take our own personal responsibility to dump the cup over and then to work together to refill that cup with what we all want, that's when we're going to, that's when we're going to experience what we're all talking about. It is a great time for change. I think that's really what Trump represented for me more than anything else. And to Montoya's point, um, no one was happier than me when I saw all of the GOP leaders, as they got picked off one by one in the debates and disappear from the race, and then they all collectively stood against Trump, I heard, I want to say it was one of the leaders of the RNC, point blank say on video, on record, I'd rather Hillary win than Trump. That's all I needed to hear to know for a fact what I believed my whole life, which is it was always an us versus them. They kept us separated and segregated as male, female, white, black, Democrat, Republican, conservative, liberal. They, sh- they literally kept us separated in so many ways so that no one ever looked and said, why do 500 privileged people make the decisions and control 300 million and control us with laws that they're not even bound by? That is the greatest hypocrisy that we've never addressed as a, as a, as a people, as a human race. And so I look at Trump and say, is he the answer? No. But who do you need? to kick down a door or a wall to break through. And I'm going to go on record saying, of all the Republican candidates, I actually fell in love with Dr. Ben Carson. But the only flaw I saw in him was he was just too polite. He was never going to be forceful or angry enough to overwhelm what needed to be overwhelmed. And that was the corporate, the media, and the political machines, all three of them at once. And they took their best shots at Trump, and believe me, he made an idiot of himself. I'm not defending or or apologizing for stuff that he said because it was, again, out there. But he kicked in the wall, knocked it down, and now we collectively can go out there and say, what do we want it to look like? Because for the first time, it's really not a Republican or a Democratic leadership. It's a Let's go create something new. So I'm going to shut up and, and as I close, say I thank you both, Lene and Montoya, for your perspectives, doing my best to, to become more aware, as I say all the time. I don't claim to even remotely understand a lot of the things that you guys have been feeling your entire lives, but I'm doing my best to see things from your perspective to understand and become more aware Because like Scott, my only hope is to make a really positive change going forward from today. So I thank you for being here, and I thank you, Scott, for allowing me to participate. Oh, absolutely. Thanks, John. Thanks for that perspective and that context. And uh, I'm going to close out by giving you guys a chance to tell our listeners how to connect with you. Um, And I I just want to say just really quick, um, you know, selfishly, uh, to piggyback a little bit on what John said in terms of Donald Trump not being a traditional politician, not being, uh, lib- um, you know, a Republican or Democrat, et cetera, um, the fact that he's in me personally because of what my ultimate goal is, which is my ultimate goal is that people will stop believing, like John said, letting, you know, 500 politicians control 300 million people. My hope is that, that they'll see 
that what's about to happen in the next four – I don't want Donald Trump to be a, a failure to the point where people get hurt more than they're already getting hurt by the systems that are already hurting people. But I would like – I would like people, I would like for, you know, the next 48 years to pretty much unfold the way they've unfolded the previous, you know, presidencies so that people can then see that, you know what, it is the whole system that doesn't work. If Donald Trump can't get in there and shake things up and drain the swamp as people want him to do and totally flip, you know, the the establishment on his head, if he has to fall in line, if he has to do things the way that everyone's always done them, if he can't move the needle, then what do we truly, what do we believe in then? What, what can this position of power really do anything for us? So I'm hoping that over the next four to eight years, Americans will get so fed up that they'll come over to the, 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 I guess, the philosophy that I've been espousing about, you know, us coming together in our communities and unifying and, and taking control of our lives ourselves. And when I say come together as a community, for me, um, you know, our communities are all different. You know, there's people who live in diverse communities. There's people that live in, you know, uh, communities that are homogenous, where there's, you know, predominant uh, ethnicities, and there's people who live in diverse communities. I don't care what community you're in, you know, you come together within that community, and then you network and you collaborate, collaborate with surrounding communities, and we build a healthy, you know, society as people, as ourselves, and stop letting those 500 control us and control our lifestyles. So that's just my wish. Uh, so I hope that uh, that will unfold, but we'll see. So that's our time for today. I want to thank uh, my co-host, John Costino, and our special guests, Lene Javette and Montoya Smith. Uh, Lene, could you briefly tell our listeners how they can connect with you on your work? And we, we have 10 minutes, so i got to get through this in the next five so I can close out after that. So if you guys can briefly take about one or two minutes to tell our listeners that. I'll be very, very brief. Um, Two ways that you can get a hold of me. I only have two handles. You can find me on any social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Um, My hashtag is, I'm sorry, my handle is at I am Lene Javette, which is L-A-N-E-E-J-A-V-E-T. Or you can find me under my business handle, which is Cole Sire, C-U-L-S-I-R-E, at Cole Sire. So either at I am Lene Javette or at I am, or Lord, forgive me, at I am Lene Javette or at Cole Sire. Those are my two handles. And let me say thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. I want you to tell our listeners about the Black Business um, Catalog that you're promoting for this uh, holiday season. Oh, thank you so much. Yes, we do have the Black Business Holiday Catalog, which is um, uh, our initiative to support black-owned businesses during the holiday season, Um, and it will be going on throughout the whole year. So if you are looking to support black-owned businesses um, and keep that revenue and that income and those dollars circulating in our community, please go to www.blackbusinesscatalog.com. Again, that's blackbusinesscatalog.com. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, I'm glad you're doing that, and, and I wish you and those small businesses much, much success. Um, Montoya, could you please share with our listeners how they can connect with you and your work and if you want to promote anything? All right. She must be trying to get off mute. Montoya, <laughs> okay, maybe on mute. Okay, oh, okay I'm no, on I'm mute. I'm sorry. I'm on mute. I'm actually on mute. Okay, okay I am on mute. Sorry about that. Uh, I just want to say to you, okay, Scott, yeah, real quick. I do hope we, yeah, I just want to say I do hope we have much success over the next four years. There's a good friend of mine, Shelley Winter, who is actually an African American who was a vote, a, a Trump voter. Uh, I thought it was appropriate for this segment to say this. 
he just said for him, it wasn't as much as a vote for Trump as it was a vote for the revolution. I think John just spoke to that. So I just wanted to get that out because I thought it was good for this segment. Also, as myself, it's just simply um, at Mental Dialogue for Facebook and for Twitter and Instagram is at Mental underscore Dialogue to get in contact with me. And Dialogue is spelled all the way out, not the digital version. So D-I-A-L-O-G-U-E. Uh, as you already mentioned at the beginning of the show, I have a show every Saturday morning on Blog Talk Radio, 10 a.m. to 12 p.m. Um, Eastern Standard Time, and it's blogtalk.com slash dialogue 2 And if you're in the Atlanta area, every third Friday we do the Mental Dialogue Live experience. So Scott, look forward to seeing you as you are one of my soapbox candidates tomorrow night. See what you got, brother. Thank you for having me on today. Oh, no doubt, man. Looking forward to being there tomorrow night. And also I want to share with the listeners that you can also find Mental Dialogue on Stitcher. Uh, I know a lot of listeners have uh, listened to podcasts on Stitcher Radio. So if you search for Mental Dialogue on Stitcher Radio, uh, you will find my latest show. He's done. He's been doing this show for several years. So uh, definitely check him out and his content. And, John, if you could share with our listeners how they can connect with you and your work and anything you'd like to promote, please do so now. Well, thank you so much, Scott. Uh, yes, you can reach me very simply. My email address is my name, John, J-O-H-N, last name Costino, C-O-S-T-I-N-O, John Costino at yahoo.com. I can be found on Facebook. There's multiple John Costino Facebook profiles, but if you click on the one, uh, it's the president and founder of MoneyWise. The reason I uh, bring that up is I, I truly believe, as Scott has already mentioned, there are two things that are inherent for everybody, and I'm 100% focused on them. I do uh, a weekly webinar on personal growth, and that entire segment is designed, and it's for free, to help people to start looking at things from a healthier perspective where we're looking inside for the answers instead of outside, and we're looking for ways to always be coming from a place of love rather than a place of fear, because if we can do that as a society, we can eliminate so many of the problems. And the second thing that I'm committed to uh, is my company, MoneyWise. We have a real simple philosophy. We're helping individuals, one family at a time, get out of debt. And that's the whole purpose uh, of why we're doing these things. If we can get people to come from a place of love instead of fear and take away the financial stress and burden, we can all live a happier life together. So I look forward to uh, the next chance to be on here and again. Scott, as always, I thank you for having me. And Montoya and Lene, it really was a pleasure being here with you. Thank you, John. And, John, where can people find your, um, your, webinar, your webinars? Um, if you're friends with me on Facebook, we post it every Wednesday. We do it Wednesday night, 7.30 p.m. Eastern Standard. It's a one-hour webinar, and everyone is welcome. We don't talk business or anything. Uh, but you friend me on Facebook, and I will have that link up there every Wednesday. And that's John Costino with a C, C-O-S-T-I-N-O, John Costino. Find him on Facebook to take advantage of those uh, webinars. I've been a member of John's um, leadership calls in the past when, when I was a business associate of his, and his uh, personal growth and development uh, trainings are amazing. Uh, he brings amazing context. So I uh, definitely recommend, highly recommend those. Um, so, again, I appreciate all of you for listening today. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, be sure to subscribe to the Race Haven Podcast on the iPhone Podcast app or Stitcher Radio app. 
or Android so that you never miss the dialogue. And if you love this show, please leave us a review on the podcast and Stitcher apps. This will help the show gain more visibility and listeners. Also, we want to hear from you. Email us your perspectives at solutions at racehavenpodcast.com, and we will read a few of them on a future show. Please visit the Race Haven Podcast Facebook page or visit racehavenpodcast.com and leave comments and questions about today's show. You can also join our online community by joining the Race Haven Community Dialogue Facebook group. If today's show resonated with you, please share the links on social media, uh, text them to your friends, share them on social media with your friends, help us spread the message of dialogue, help us spread the message of sharing diverse perspectives and welcoming diverse perspectives and learning from each other and coming together uh, and understanding that we have to reject fear. We have to reject fear and, and, and operate in a place of love and togetherness, as John stated, uh, as Lene stated, as Montoya stated, coming together and revolutionize against, you know, the divisiveness and the fear-based rhetoric that is the current environment uh, and, and coming together in love. So with that said, a race haven is a, is a safe place for people from diverse ethnic, religious, cultural, and political backgrounds to bring their race-based perspectives, questions, assumptions, frustrations, and experiences to engage in thoughtful, honest dialogue in an effort to transcend race and unify America. Remember, we are all smarter when we think together. Peace. Thanks for listening to the Race Haven Radio Show and Podcast. Be sure to visit www.racehavenblog.com to comment and learn more.